two thoughts together. Uh, we're worshiping Jesus together right now. We're feasting on His Word, and we are asking the Spirit to do work in us and do work in others as we walk through this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ does not, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Father, we are so thankful that we have Christ, that Christ has been proclaimed to, to us. And for many in this room, our ears heard, our eyes saw, and our heart believed in Christ. And we became part of those who are being saved. Father, we pray that will be true of everyone in this room and everyone that we know and love and everyone in our city. That you would come and accomplish your purpose and your will. Do that here today for your glory. So the name of Christ will be made known in our lives and through our lives. We pray in his name. Amen. I love how this letter opens. Considering the situation Paul was speaking into, writing to a church that he was instrumental in helping uh, plant. 18 months he spent in Corinth proclaiming the gospel. And uh, people were coming alive and a church was born. Now Paul has journeyed on and hearing troubles and, and reports and letters about all these issues this church was dealing with. Just incredible issues that will have us at times in this letter scratching our head. Like how, how could these people even be believers? The sin is so rampant. And Paul writing into and speaking back into this situation, some of the issues, bad theology, some of the issues, just sinful lifestyles. Like they were saved out of this Greco-Roman lifestyle into the, the reality of Christ. I'll just talk louder if this thing doesn't work. Into the reality of Christ and the reality of the gospel in them, unable to or, uh, or undesiring to allow the gospel to influence and saturate every single part of their life. 
And Paul's writing to these people who are not allowing the gospel to shape every aspect of their life and in, in, in responding to the issues that he was facing. This first issue that he deals with, the church severely divided in their loyalties to particular leaders. Sure, we'll do that. The church severely divided in their loyalty to particular leaders. And right off the bat, in dealing with all of these problems, Paul lays this deep, rich gospel foundation, knowing he can't fix all that is broken in them. And guys, it's the same for us today as a local church. In whatever ways sin is present in this local body of believers, in whatever ways sin is being hidden or cherished in our hearts, In whatever ways we're not unified, either today or one day we face issues of disunity. In whatever ways we're not allowing the gospel of Jesus to saturate all of our life and transform all of our lives. We cannot fix ourselves. We can't. As one of your pastors, I can't fix you. As much as I want to fix you, as much as I want to fix my own brokenness, I can't do that. We are incapable of doing that. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to to accomplish what only the gospel of Jesus Christ can accomplish in power and in wisdom. Whatever is broken in our city, it's the gospel that is the hope for our city. And this is a good thing, guys, because my best plan, the, the very best of my wisdom that I can give you apart from the gospel is only a temporary fix. It's a band aid. And it won't truly transform us in the deepest ways that we need to be transformed. But Jesus and his gospel through the word of God, the spirit of God can move and do in us in three seconds more than three years of our best planning and our best wisdom can do. And so let's see the beauty this morning and the beauty and the power of the gospel in this passage. Paul identified this first issue of division, factions in the church, showing loyalty to these four leaders. And he calls on them to not be like that in verse 10. And then he ends that section we looked at last week by saying in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we get introduced here to this key idea that's going to be dealt with throughout the rest of chapter 1, even into chapter 2, that there's something about the way we proclaim the gospel that can actually empty the gospel of its power. Like we can proclaim the gospel, actually use words related to the gospel, maybe even the message of the gospel, but we can do it in such a way that it can literally empty the gospel of its power. The word there in the original language means empty, useless, of no value. Unable to accomplish the very purpose for which we proclaim the gospel. That's pretty scary. I think it would be a good idea if we would find out more about that so we can keep from doing that. And we're going to deal with that honestly more specifically next week. But before we get into how we proclaim the gospel, we need to dive deep on the nature of the gospel and why it matters how we proclaim it. So that we don't proclaim it in a way, share it in a way that actually empties it of its power. And so Paul moves into this in verse 18 and makes a stark contrast. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul reveals here that humanity can be most simply and powerfully divided into two groups. Those who are perishing 
in those who are being saved. Those who are perishing, not not perished. So even in, in the way Paul writes this, there's hope. They haven't perished. They're in the process of perishing. There's still hope. It's ongoing because they haven't fully, finally, forever perished. And then those who are in the process of being saved. We, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin so that we don't have to say yes to any sin. We have the power to say no to every sin, to say no to every temptation. Sin has no power over those who are in Christ. And we will be saved one day from the presence of sin. So all of that goes into this idea, we who are being saved. The, 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 the justification, sanctification, and glorification of us through the gospel. And notice it's those who are being saved. The passive voice, they aren't saving themselves. They are being saved. We are saved. We don't save ourselves. So what we see in this passage is more than man, woman, more than Jew or Greek, more than slave or free, more than black or white, more than American, non-American, college, no college, more than the ones who say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Humanity is divided into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. That's the simplest, most powerful way that we are divided as humans. And Paul knew and we know that to be truly united as one, this has to be the foundation. Like this has to be what we place most emphasis and weight on. The fact that by God's grace, most of us in this room can say, we are being saved. Jesus is saving us. He has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us. We are in this process of being saved fully and finally forever when we are in the eternal state with our God and our King and His people. And if we put most of our weight and trust on this reality and the hope that, that, that this is the foundation of our unity, then we can be incredibly diverse in all these other ways. We can be a church of different ethnicities and different income levels and different educational levels and different jobs and careers and parenting styles and hobbies and ages and political parties and other preferences. And if those things start to divide us, as is prone to happen in a group of people, then we run back to the cross. We run back to the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the gospel. Because almost all of those areas of division that I mentioned earlier, almost all of them are temporary, but our bond in Christ will be something that we sing about and celebrate 10 million years from now. And we will only be getting started. Sadly, to those who are perishing, they also have a bond. Their bond is not only that they are perishing, but they don't even realize they are perishing. They don't enjoy Jesus and his gospel. They dismiss it as pure folly. So let's spend some time on that because we see that here in verse 18. And we also see it in verses 22 through 23. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So what is the gospel to those who are perishing? In verse 18, it is folly. Literally, the word in the original language is a word we get our word moronic from. It means blunted, dull, stupid, nonsense. To those who are perishing, this is the cross. This is the gospel. Sigmund Freud, father of modern psychology, widely respected as intelligent, genius, whatever, he said this about religion and Christianity. The whole thing is so patently infantile. 
so foreign to reality that to anyone with a friendly attitude to humanity, it is painful to think that the great majority of mortals will never be able to rise above this view of life. Poor us. Or as seen in the first century, there was a piece of graffiti on a a plaster wall on a hillside outside of Rome. And this piece of graffiti, it's scratched into the plaster, uh, an image, I have a picture of it, an image of... um, the, a, a, a man's body on a cross with a donkey's head and a man bowing down. It's from the first century. And the graffiti is, is titled, Alexamenos Worships His God. Whoever Alexamenos was, somebody was making fun of him because he's worshiping this guy hanging on a cross. Now it's great evidence about the reality and truth of who Christians worshipped. They worshipped a man hanging on a cross, which is very odd and peculiar as we'll see. But it was also just flat out ridicule because he put a donkey's head where the head of Christ was supposed to be. In verse 22 through 23, Paul writes that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But all we do is preach Christ crucified and it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Christ crucified is a way of saying or referring to all of the redemptive work of Christ. So Paul's not being literal like he's only talking about Jesus on the cross. Implied in that is his incarnation, his perfect, righteous, sinless life, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Jesus only on the cross isn't good news. He's just a dead guy. As Paul would say later in chapter 15, if if Christ hasn't been raised, then we are foolish. We're, We're morons. We're wasting our time. So Jesus only on the cross is not good news. It's part of the good news, and that's implied in that terminology, Christ crucified, all of the gospel, the full width and depth of the person and work of Christ. Now, the Jews are demanding signs, and we see this throughout the gospels. And Jesus steadfastly refused to give them a sign because he knew their hearts, and he knew the reason they made those requests. It wasn't that they were looking for evidence in which they could believe in Jesus, They were looking for Jesus to check their boxes so they, in their wisdom and estimation, could determine, oh, he is the Messiah. They were asking Jesus to fit their understanding of the Messiah. And he did plenty of signs and wonders. Raising the dead and healing the sick and and curing the leper and amazing signs and wonders. Feeding 5,000 people from a small lunch. It should have been enough, but they wanted more. Because they wanted him to bow down to them. They wanted him to fit their parameters of who the Messiah would be. A Messiah that fit their profile. Jesus, I'll believe in you if you heal my child. Jesus, I'll believe in you if you give me a job. Jesus, I'll believe in you if you help me to win the lottery. And some of the silly things that people do even today. In order to make Jesus conform to who they want Jesus to be. Instead of taking him at face value and bowing before King Jesus. Now, the Greeks sought wisdom. Greek wisdom is a way to use rational thought to explain life and give order and systems to life. So the Epicureans and the Stoics and the Sophists and the Platonists all had their worldview that in their minds gave the best explanation to all of life. And combined with eloquent words, your ability to persuade or influence people to adhere to your systems. In the estimations of uh, estimation of the Greeks, the gospel is just pure nonsense, folly. It's a donkey head on a man on a tree. To a Jew, it's a stumbling block. Literally in the Greek, scandalon. We get our word scandalous from that. Not just something that tripped them up and they couldn't get over it in order to see the truth and validity, but it was offensive. 
scandalous. You would, you would say the Messiah is that? You want me to believe in that? And I'm expecting King David to walk through the gates of Jerusalem and, and reclaim our kingdom and territory? And, and, and you're telling me that our Messiah is cursed on a tree? I can't believe that. And to the Greeks, it's foolish and ridiculous. You're, you're worshiping a man who died the most horrible way to die, that, a, a way of death that wasn't even open to Roman citizens, the death of a slave, the death of a, a, a non-Roman. And you're calling him God? Guys, we've cherished and embraced the cross for so long, it's really hard to put into words the shock value of why it was so difficult for these people to embrace. I mean, part of it was just the elevation of the cross as to, as to part of your worship, something you cherish and value. Maybe if we could imagine a, a Nazi gas chamber or an electric chair or an atomic bomb, as horrific as those things are, if we could imagine one day those symbols being transformed into one of the most cherished symbols in your life, you might be getting close to how scandalous it was for the Jew or Greek to embrace the cross and Christ crucified. But guys, it was more than just the shock of the cross, an instrument of death becoming something to cherish. It also had to do with how we are wired in our natural state as simple creatures. To embrace Christ crucified as a means of salvation means two things. We have to admit we struggle as humanity. I need to be saved. There's something fundamentally broken in me. It's fundamentally, fundamentally broken in my relationship with God that needs to be fixed. And number two, I can't fix it. I can't save myself. Somebody else needs to save me. Now, the end result of all of this, as we'll see next week, is verse 29, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Our salvation is so much of God, we can boast in none of it. But there's nothing about our salvation that we can take any credit for or do any boasting in. Like nothing. We are completely broken and dependent on Jesus to save us. We are in the most fragile state in my intelligence our social standing, our prominence, our religious upbringing, none of it adds one iota to our salvation. None of it. The Jews had been God's people for thousands of years. They had this long-standing relationship with God. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the temple ceremony. They had all this heritage as God's people. And here comes Jesus in John chapter 3 telling them to be born a Jew is not enough. You must be born again. And the religious leader, Nicodemus, is just kind of scratching his head. What are you talking about? I can't go back into my mom and be born again. Like he had no category for this. He had no place to put this. It was that crazy in their mind. And for the Greek, which is not just literally Greek people, but any non-Jew, Roman, Greek, Gentile, they were, they were the preeminent civilization in the world in which humility was not valued. It was how boastful, how proud, how arrogant, how strong, how smart, how witty and wise you could be. And you're telling me all that counts for nothing, and I'm saved through this ridiculous Jewish carpenter who died the death of a Roman criminal. It's preposterous. We are the smartest civilization on earth. We will figure it out. We are the most powerful civilization on earth. We will seize it. And you're telling me I can't do any of these things? I'm just supposed to bow before this guy on a cross? One author put it like this. The cross thus stands as the final negation of all human attempts to attain God. Its truth cannot be achieved through the best of human intellect and strength must be received as a gift. 
and the humble submission of faith and trust. And if we were honest with ourselves, we would all see ways in which we also try and save ourselves. We also do things and desire things in order to make ourselves right and good and pleasing in God's eyes. And we still struggle with that even after we receive Christ, basing our identity, our worth, our value in things other than Christ. Making them more important to us. And we know these idols in our heart, we know they're idols in our heart because when we lose them or we fear losing them, we go crazy. We go right into fear. Right into despair. Right into anger. Because someone is threatening what we are worshiping other than Jesus. So really, if we're honest this morning, examining our hearts, we, we understand why the group, Greeks and Jews would say the cross is foolishness. It does seem to be foolish. How believing in this event that actually happened, this man who did these things, literally changes the course of human history and changes our life forever. Guys, the gospel message is still offensive today and preposterous. It's still offensive to proclaim a message that you are a sinner and you need a Savior and Jesus alone can save you. You can't save yourself through your good works, your intellect, your religious background, the faith of your grandparents or parents. The gospel is still offensive. And we cannot package the gospel with enough wit or creative articulation to take away the offense of the gospel. We can't. In fact, sometimes the only reason we don't feel the offense of the gospel and the people that we're engaging with the gospel to those who are perishing is because we haven't actually shared the gospel. Maybe we've just been a nice person to them and built a good relationship thinking somehow we can be nice enough they'll believe in Jesus because we're so nice. Well, then guess who gets the glory for the gospel in their life? The nice people. We nice them into heaven. I mean, nobody says anything preposterous like that, but sometimes it's how we act. Because we just love and serve and we're nice and we never proclaim the gospel to them. The problem with that is this. If we never get to the actual gospel in those conversations, not only will we never know if the gospel is offensive, but we will also never see the power of gospel, the power of the gospel work in their life. They'll never have an opportunity to come alive. They will only be saved by the gospel and we hope they will only be offended by the gospel and not us. But we'll never know until we proclaim the gospel and that's our calling and our role and our privilege as disciples of Jesus. The gospel to those who are perishing is foolish and offensive. We cannot change that. Our job is not to package it or sell it in such a way it loses that offense. Like maybe if we can make the gospel as attractive as as bacon or butter. Everybody loves bacon and butter, right? We just make it that attractive and everybody would want it. But we lose the gospel. It's not offensive anymore because you're not proclaiming that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and Jesus alone is that way of salvation. You're saying, this is as good as bacon and butter. Who wouldn't want that? Join the Jesus Club. You get, you get him like, okay, I'll just leave bacon and butter behind. I don't know where that came from. Our job is not also to make the gospel more offensive. So, so don't take this and, and run out today and just assault people, all right? Ramming it down their throat. Let me tell you how simple you are. 
force you to believe in Jesus. Sometimes we share the gospel because we've built a relationship with people and we've earned that right because of the love and trust that we've built with them. Sometimes we share the gospel with people we've just met, depending on how the Spirit leads us, but it's always in love and it's always in grace. We love people and look for people and opportunities to share out of our love for people, not to boast about how many people we've told about Jesus. And we, we do it with the hope that by the power of the gospel, some people will move from those who are perishing to those who are being saved. So what is the gospel to those who are being saved? In verse 18, Paul said it is the power of God. Verse 24, 25, we found out more. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To those who are called, which is synonymous with those who are being saved. This is the fourth time Paul has used that term called so far in, the, in this letter, emphasizing the sovereignty of God over our salvation, which is another way to chip into the pride and arrogance of the Corinthian believers. Realizing that God saves you. He loved you first before you ever loved him. He's coming after you before you ever sought him. He's initiated this thing. He's accomplished this thing. We, by his grace, get to enjoy this reality of salvation. So much so there's nothing about our salvation we can boast. So those who are called, and this is to those who are called, this is what is beautiful about the grace and love of God. Like where do the called and saved come from? They come from the population of those who are perishing. Jew and Greek. For those who are perishing doesn't have to always be your identity. Salvation can come. Today can be the day of your salvation. If you would see your sinfulness and turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ crucified for you, who died for your sins and rose from the dead, proving that everything he said and did was true. You can also come alive in Christ and become a new creation. Christ can dwell within you and adopt you into the family of God as a son, a dearly loved son and daughter of your Father in heaven. Never to be kicked out of the family. And experience the power of God and the wisdom of God, which is stronger and wiser than the best that men will ever come up with. That's, that's the irony Paul is playing on in verse 25. The foolishness and weakness of God. From the perspective of those who are perishing, it is foolishness and weakness. But it really isn't. It is the essence of true wisdom and true power. Now the power of God is the effective action of God, the ability of God to bring about what His character, nature, and will require and desire. Seen a lot in the Old Testament in the Word of God, so think creation. Comprehend or try to comprehend the power of God in creation, calling everything into existence from nothing. That's power. Speaking words, and there's light, and solar systems, and sun, and moons, and seas, and land, and animals flying, and swimming, and walking, and running, and then people, and the image of God. That is power. In the wisdom of God, the most correct and best course of action in carrying out the truth and reality of God's character, nature, and desires. So wisdom literature in the Old Testament is the truth of God applied to life. It's more than just knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge rightly applied to life. So wisdom is everything God about God rightly applied to every aspect of human history and life. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is utterly 
other. Completely distinct from us. He knows and sees and comprehends everything at all times at once. And it's not hard for him. He's not struggling with all of this. God has to learn nothing. Has to learn nothing. He perfectly executes his will in all aspects of human history. And he never makes a single mistake. God never says, oops. Never. He never has an off day. From our perspective, when we encounter aspects of our lives that we don't like or, or we're hurt, we think, God took an off day. God messed up on this. There's got to be something better than this plan. It's only because we're not God. We don't know what He knows or see what He sees. If we knew what He knew and saw what He saw, we would totally understand why we're in the situation we're in. And the power and the wisdom of God in this passage are centered on Jesus and the cross and the gospel. This is the ultimate display of the wisdom and power of God. God accomplishing His perfect plan of loving redemption for humanity all while working through the willful choices of sinful, scheming, plotting opponents Weak, scared, inconsistent followers, and the devil himself working against you. Ten million things had to happen for Jesus to end up on the cross as a criminal when he was truly innocent. But the only charge brought against him is that he claimed to be the Son of God, which was true. And God in his wisdom and power brought that about, not by descending from the clouds and and shaking the earth and riding in the sky. This needs to happen. Do it. Crucify my son. But in the fullness of time, he came as one of us. And every single event throughout human history worked according to his purpose and plan so that Jesus would willingly, lovingly die a sacrificial death on our behalf and rise from the dead. And to us, those who are being saved, those who have been called, this is not foolish or offensive. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Why we write songs and sing them loudly. It's why we create art and write poetry. It's so humbling we don't stand and beat our chest like we just scored a touchdown or dunked on somebody. We fall on our face with gratitude that He would save me, even me. And we get low and we serve others in order for them to come to this same saving knowledge of Jesus. It's so precious we spend the remaining years of our lives giving and serving and sacrificing so others will know that Jesus is precious. We give chunks of our income away for this and chunks of our time away for this. And we plant churches and we spend time loving our neighbors in our city with the hope that they would know that Jesus is precious. And we pray and we fast and we rearrange our entire lives so that the center and the foundation is Jesus and Him crucified. And it's not even something we feel forced to do. Or we do begrudgingly. We enjoy it. By His grace, we willingly and lovingly do it because He is precious. It's the parable Jesus told in Matthew 13 of the man who discovered a treasure hidden in a field. And he goes and he sells everything that he owns to buy a field. And his friends and neighbors are surely asking him, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? In the first century, you don't do this. This is certifiably insane. You don't sell all your possessions to buy a field. 
The man's just like, no, I do. I'm really happy about this. Go ahead, just give me my money. Let me get the plot. It's mine. Why does it make sense to him? Why is it not crazy to him? Why is it perfectly sane and enjoyable thing to do? Because of the treasure. Because of the treasure. The treasure is Jesus. The treasure is the gospel. And we willingly, lovingly give away whatever we need to give away so that we can enjoy it, so that others can enjoy this treasure. Is Jesus the treasure of your life? Is Jesus truly what captivates your heart? Tim Keller said that one of the greatest assurances of knowing that you've been saved is that you've come alive in Christ is that you see Jesus as precious, as a treasure. More than acknowledging the truth and facts of the gospel, passing a test, more than looking at your behaviors and trying to determine if there's enough righteousness and consistency in your behavior to to pass the morality test, more than both of those things, you go straight to the heart. Is Jesus our treasure? Is he precious? Does he captivate our heart? Is he what we are after? Now imagine an entire group of people who say yes, yes. Certainly we have off moments and off days. Certainly it's not always easy. Sometimes it is a struggle. Let's not deny that this morning. But in the deepest part of our being, when we're most honest and transparent, we say, yes, that is who I want to be. I want to be the one who's captivated by Jesus. And when sin is exposed, we repent and running back to Jesus. Because it's the deepest core being of who we are. And when we have a group of people who say, yes, that is true. There's nothing and no one that captivates our hearts more than Jesus. That our greatest treasure, even more than the many good things and people we could love and do love, even more than those good things, our greatest treasure is Jesus. It is clear how this becomes a foundation for unity. That declares to the world we are his and we have a unity and oneness in him that can only be explained by the wisdom and power of God himself. And everything else that could possibly divide us melts away in the power and wisdom of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because we are all beholding our treasure. Sometimes Jennifer and I, when we are in conflict, we'll stop and just remind each other, hey, You know, we're on the same team. We're not really enemies. We really want the same things. So we don't have to jump on every possible opportunity to divide and fight. We can choose instead to encourage and edify each other. And when we do say and do dumb things and stupid things, we don't have to stay in that place of offense and hurt. We can forgive and show grace and love. And guys, what's true of husbands and wives is true of brothers and sisters in the church. We're not enemies. If we all share Christ, we're brothers and sisters. We're family. And what we share in Christ is so much greater and more powerful than anything that we allow to divide us. It's not just that we're family. God even intends for us to be friends. Not just that we're gritting our teeth. I gotta love this person. It's my brother or sister. I don't like them. I gotta love them. I really enjoy you. I enjoy being around you. I'm interested in who you are. So we're friends, as well as family. This is not treasured among those who are perishing, but in fact is ridiculed and offensive. 
But we keep proclaiming Christ with the hope that we'll become part of those who are being saved. And Jesus is treasured and precious and they experience the wisdom and the power of God in Christ. And lastly, see that this is the pleasure of God in his plan. This has always been his plan. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The wisdom of this world, a world centered on the power of man over man, the power to oppress Centered on self-exaltation and promotion. I got to get all I can get while I can get. Living to impress. Boasting not in the Lord, but boasting in me, myself, and I. Look how amazing I am. Basically, most of our culture. In every corner of our culture. And this passage, a quote, verse 19 from Isaiah 29, says, This wisdom is finite. It is coming to an end. It's dwindling down and eventually will be brought to an end. It's not just that it's going to be done away with, but it doesn't even compare to the wisdom of God. You see that in verse 20, this, these rhetorical questions drawn from Isaiah 33. The expected answer is nowhere, but it's not like the Lord is really searching. Where is this wisdom at? I'm looking. I want to find it. That's not the, the, the tone of the language. The tone of the language is the, the one of a victor on a battlefield who has vanquished, vanquished everyone and everything. And he's saying, next, where you at? What else you got? That's how much greater the wisdom of God is over the wisdom of man. There is no one else that can stand before him. He is supreme above and beyond everything and everything else. It's, it's more like Psalm 2, verse 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. Uh-oh, all of earth has come together against the Lord and against his anointed. This doesn't look good. What's God going to do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's laughing at all that the world can marshal against him and his anointed. He's laughing. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is hundreds of years before Jesus came saying, I'm going to do it and none of you can stop me. In fact, I'm going to work through you. It's amazing. It's amazing. Even though you don't want me to work through you, I'm still working through you. The world system that seems so powerful and permanent and deplorable, and it seems like it's always going to be, is not only passing away, but it doesn't hold a candle to the wisdom and power of God. Every single nation in the world could outlaw Christianity and Jesus will still be building his church. You cannot stop this. And verse 21 says, this is pleasing to God to work in this way. But the folly of what we preach, the gospel saves and changes lives and not our human wisdom and power. Again, if there were any aspect of our salvation that was accomplished by us, we would definitely take credit for sure. 
and rob the Lord of his glory. He had to make it and it pleased him to make salvation and life come through a means by which we can take no credit. And in fact, would seem foolish and ridiculous to everyone but those who are his. You know, the Beatitudes, the the qualities that Jesus identified in Matthew 5 as as those qualities that would characterize his followers, his people. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He's just beginning the Sermon on the Mount. And and his disciples are gathered around him and a crowd is listening in to this long sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he opens by talking about these qualities. Blessed are. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are the pure of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake because of righteousness. One way of understanding the Beatitudes is to look at the opposite of the Beatitudes. This is what God esteems and values, what God creates in his people and desires. So what's the opposite? One pastor put it together. Blessed are the self-confident because they rule the world. Blessed are the positive thinkers because they don't need anybody's comfort. Blessed are the cocky and assertive because they get what they want. Blessed are those who hunger for fame because they get reality TV shows. It's more of a curse, actually. Blessed are the vengeful because they get respect. Blessed are the impure pleasure seekers because they see a good time. Blessed are those who beat their opponents because the victors write the history books. Blessed are the popular because everybody loves them. That is the wisdom and power of this world. And even now, it's not only fading, but even now it's not greater than God's wisdom and power. Who says to us, blessed are the poor, poor in spirit, recognize their spiritual brokenness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, not just general mourning over being sad about the hardness of life, but mourning over your sin, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, Humble strength, think, a horse under the control of its master, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is who we are as God's people. And it may not seem like it's greater than what we see in the world, but it's greater than. And one day it will be clear to all. So when we are most hopeless and most afraid because it seems like the wisdom of this world is more powerful or more permanent, when we see sin and arrogance and pride destroying the lives of people we love, dividing families and communities and churches, when we are helpless to change hearts, when we realize we can't fix what needs to be fixed, then you and I are exactly where the Lord wants us. At the end of ourselves, completely dependent upon him. And all we can do is fall down before him and call out for help. Have mercy, O God, on me, a sinner. Intervene in this situation, God. I can't fix it. That's what characterizes us as his people. The power and wisdom of Jesus and the the gospel. 
to quit trying to be saviors, to quit relying on our power and wisdom to change ourselves or change the people around us and to run to him, to trust in him, to see that he's been accomplishing his purposes and changing lives for thousands of years and he's not about to stop. In fact, he takes pleasure in this in being the one with whom all true wisdom and power exists so that no one can boast. Only he gets the glory because only he deserves the glory. Do you believe that this morning? Do we believe this this morning? I just picture in your mind the most seemingly hopeless situation that you're in. Like it might be you. Like you're here this morning and you're just broken. It's dark and you don't see light. It might be someone you know or love. Like, Do you believe God has the wisdom and power to change that situation through the gospel? If we really believe, like, how would that show up in our lives? Wouldn't there be some fervent asking God to work and praying? Wouldn't there be a lack of fear or anxiety? Wouldn't there be a, a confidence in the power and wisdom of God and a lack of confidence in our power and wisdom? Like, before, before I pray, I just want to give you space and time just to be quiet and, 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 and listen and talk to the Lord. And whatever that situation is, whether it's you or somebody you know or love, that you feel most hopeless, situation seems most bleak, just take a few moments and go to Him. Confess your complete inadequacy to fix this and your complete trust in Him to work His power and His wisdom out for His glory in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are not only powerful, but kind. Not only big and strong, but close. You are not distant and unattached to our lives, but you are very much in our lives and in our world. You have walked in our shoes. You know what it's like to be one of us. And although all we deserve is hell, and punishment and judgment because of our sins. You have been so good and kind to show us grace and mercy through your son, Jesus. And there's 10,000 ways that needs to show up in our life, in our relationships, in our decisions, in our time, money. So 
So, Father, I, I ask that you would take your gospel and apply it to our hearts and lives today. If someone needs salvation, that you would save them. That they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. If someone needs hope, you would give them hope because of Christ. A hope of glory. Someone needs encouragement that you would come alongside of them, the Holy Spirit, and help them to see beyond the, the darkness of what they're going through. Do all these things because you love us. You love us far more than we ever love you. Overwhelm us with that love this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand here. Thank you.